Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Everybody, welcome back to all new, all different Uncanny X's for podcast, the show where we take a look at the Uncanny X-Men as it continues its market domination throughout the 1980s and 90s. Normally we would. However, today we're taking a look at a book from across the pond. We're going to be finishing up our coverage of Alan Moore's Miracle Man. If we're talking Captain Britain and Miracle Man, there can only be one guy here with me today, and that's, of course, HTML's and my husband, Kevo. Hi. So, Kevo... We took a weird break from Captain Britain to do the Alan Moore Miracle Man stuff or Marvel Man, however you want to know him. And it's such a unique experience to talk about this comic in terms of the stuff we're covering on X-Men. How so? Well, you know, the X-Men are still dealing with very real, very life or death situations. But a number of those situations are still firmly rooted in super heroics, where I would probably say there are no super heroics in Miracle Man. I hesitate to call anyone a hero in Miracle Man. I think it depends on your perspective, point of view, and definition of super heroics. I agree that the stories that we read in Alan Moore's Miracle Man are not quite the uh, stalwart heroes that we are used to from comics. It's definitely a unique perspective on the idea of superheroes as a whole. It's also made more interesting by the presentation of the information. While we read it in Marvel's repackaging that was released over the course of two years or so, originally, Miracle Man number 11 came out in May of 1987, while the ultimate finale of the series, number 16, didn't appear until sometime in 1991. That giant gap definitely affected the narrative storytelling and... It really is a strange experience to try and read this as one arc. Yeah, I can't imagine that would have made this any easier. Reading this all at once was already pretty disjointed and hard to follow from time to time. And that wasn't made any easier by the inclusion of the Miracle Man Annual. While all of the other issues had originally been published as Miracle Man stories or were Warp Smith stories that were somehow relevant, what made this run unusual is there's a contribution from Grant Morrison, which had originally been intended to be released at the time of the original Miracle Man series, as well as a brand new contribution from Pete Milligan. Now, the Pete Milligan story would team him up with his great partner, Mike Allred. The two of them have done a million books together. But the Grant Morrison story is really interesting because it sees Joe Quesada join the team. And Joe Quesada, not just then Marvel's chief creative officer, but a guy who had a very public falling out with Grant Morrison. So getting them back together on a single project is very interesting. And that additional story sort of shoehorned in the middle does sort of make the narrative hard to follow. I would agree with that. (laughs) 
so where we last left Miracle Man, our wonderful hero, Mickey, sort of accepts that he is now Miracle Man, whether or not he was or is, it doesn't matter anymore. He was a lab rat and was experimented on and he switches bodies with this other body and everything he ever thought to be true, his marriage to his wife Liz, his relationships with everyone else he knows, all fake, all manufactured, but just as manufactured as his time as a hero. Now, last arc had the ever-famous, very visceral giving birth sequence, and this arc features something a bit different. Here, Mick's daughter, Winter, is something else. She's got kind of an attitude on her. Well, so does her dad. It's sort of that whole, I'm a super god and you can't stop me thing. Yeah, alright. She also, like, talks to him about all of time and space as a baby. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that character. She is a little weird. She's a she's a little off-putting. But that isn't the only strong woman we're introduced to in this arc. We also meet Miracle Woman. Avril Lavigne. Yeah, she's a, she's a lot, and I don't know that she aged quite as well as I would have hoped. But, well, I mean, like, visually, she still looks great. No, I liked her. I definitely find her to be a pretty sympathetic, level-headed character overall. I agree. And I'm talking about all of these side characters first, because at the heart of this story, there's sort of one big narrative. And that is that the cuckoos, or as they should be better known, the miracle people, are all sort of being accounted for by a greater consciousness. And that's one of the big things about Alan Moore's work. There's always so much ephemeral and not quite describable and here they are sort of along with the warp smiths like Aza Chorn hey look they were necessary we're getting a picture of the world that the miracle family hopes to create however there's still one pretty major roadblock in Mickey's way and that's unfortunately Johnny Bates kid miracle man uh i don't love everything about the resolution of that story it does sort of feel a bit like a cop-out. One of the things that started this series off is that Kid Miracle Man had continued to age and grow using Johnny's personage. So when they switched back, Johnny was a little boy with Kid Miracle Man living inside him. And the danger was that if he ever got out again, it would be disastrous. And Johnny does everything he can to hold the beast back. Throughout the arc, we're shown that he's being picked on and he's suffering for who he was, but there comes a point where he's being bullied and attacked, and frankly, in that very Alan Moore way, male-on-male rape. You know, Alan Moore occasionally gets accused of using rape too much, but I would like to point out that Alan Moore kind of has men get raped just as much as women, and I don't know if that's better, but it's less tropey, and I appreciate that. It's more even, and that's at least something significant that should be accounted for, for sure. It was a pretty hard moment, and oh, the atrocities that follow after with Kid Miracle Man are also very Alan Moore and disturbing. And then I uh, don't entirely appreciate... Okay, so does he remember everything Kid Miracle Man does? I think he has some vague notion of, like, nightmares. 
Because, like, here's what I was thinking about. The fact that once they become friends with the KISS, Q-Y-S, they're able to go into this negative space and pull bodies out that were put in there to transform into. We know that because they pull out the terrifying beast monster that I'm sure you found adorable. Why couldn't they just get Kid Miracle Man out of there and have Johnny be okay? I guess if he couldn't live with the atrocities, but that was part of what I thought as soon as they were like, oh, we pulled our dog out. Well, I think part of it is that Kid Miracle Man grew in this world. I think it's harder to separate Johnny from Kid Miracle Man. And part of the problem is the story is told in these 16-page bursts, so a lot is missing. And despite not having an answer on exactly why that wouldn't work, there's these gorgeous moments like the as soon as Johnny wakes up and he begins his murder spree, there's a nurse who thinks she's escaped him. And we see her basically thank God that she escaped and then she's immediately murdered. And it's that sort of moment that's that tragic heartbreak that Alan Moore knows how to capture. And yeah, okay, it is a little bit why he has a habit of, you know, yeah, there's a giant plot hole. He kind of doesn't care. It's not even giant. It's just there and can be accounted for. But as you even said, so many things are introduced at such a rapid fire pace. We're introduced to the character of Huey Moon as a fire drake. And it's such an interesting character that we barely get to see any of. And it's because he only has so much space to tell this story that has so many components. And I think that's what happens when you try and take a holistic look at a genre. You know, this wasn't just about the Miracle Family as much as it is just about the Miracle Family. It talks to the heart of Golden Age, Silver Age, and then Bronze Age into Modern Age comics. I think... The last issue is so separate from everything else. It's even more separate than the annual in some ways. The battle with Johnny is a slow build from issue 11 up through issue 15. Issue 15, Nemesis, is essentially a war zone in which Mickey has to come to some pretty severe realizations. And it's hard not to notice that Kevo's point, your point of why couldn't they just switch out kid miracle man why couldn't they just pull him out of there well you know mick's not so interested well no that's even the point miracle man is not so interested in who he used to be anymore and i think there maybe isn't room for johnny who had been kid miracle man in this new world i mean it's just sad sad and tragic is the point at the end of the day I just feel so bad for the character. And it's that sort of super tragedy that Moore loves to tell with characters like this. And I also find it really interesting that Dickie, young Miracle Man, really never comes up that much. He comes up a bit with the discussion of the cuckoos, as there are so many of them or whatever. But young Miracle Man sort of gets the hop over anything and like you didn't need to bring back both of his sidekicks as villains or anything but i feel like outside of some glimpses of him in the flashback material johnny is almost a footnote in a way that feels disconnected from the rest of the narrative they said he was dead but then they said i think that they mistook someone else's remains for his body so i think he might be i mean quote unquote out there somewhere with the way things are left who even knows what that would mean but I feel like I might remember that that was an option. It was uh, interesting and a little bit catty that Avril implied that he was in love with Mickey. That was very uh, 
the best you got for visibility of the era. And it's so important to note that even though I keep referring to this as the end of the Alan Moore era, this is not the end of our coverage of Miracle Man, nor was it the end of Marvel Man at the time. The series did continue under now world-famous Uber writer Neil Gaiman and better known as the penciler on fables Mark Buckingham. So they would continue Miracle Man right away with number 17. Beyond that, it is collected under its own name in America. It is the final arc that was republished with the arc that was always intended to be finished, the big finale to Miracle Man, just sort of nebulously sitting. But before we can even get to that, Miracle Man 16 involves the world that Mickey has built for himself. And I think sort of the crux of the Miracle Man Marvel Man argument comes on the last page of the last issue, in which Miracle Man says he finds it strange that Liz wasn't interested in coming to this new world and being perfect in a perfect world and kind of bothers him. Just he thinks about it sometimes. And I think the reason that that stands out to me is because it's so petty and little. He's a god. Why is he thinking about this? See, and I took a very different take on that after everything that we had read that really rubber banded for me back to the moment in the annual when he's stopping and thinking to himself, how come none of these people get hurt anytime? Look at all this debris and all these bodies that are all everywhere. Nobody's hurt when he's in the dream state and still, you know, believing that he's Miracle Man. And Dickie and Johnny are like, what? What are you talking about? And he thinks about it. And he's like, oh, nothing, nothing, nothing to worry about. And to me, it feels a little bit like an echo of that, because at the end of the day, Miracle Man is, at least in our world, a fictional character. And it's almost like perhaps even meta-awareness. You know, he's a perfect god living in a perfect world and everything is so perfect and nothing is flawless. Shouldn't there be something? And that's, I think, what that moment represented to me. Okay. Now, I took a much more cynical take on it, obviously. I see it as Miracle Man is sort of doomed to repeat the mistakes that created him. You know, Gargunza, well, truly selfish. I mean, I can't believe Gargunza just like doesn't even come up in the discussion of this episode. But looking at it in a bigger picture, Gargunza just wanted to create a better world, kind of, for himself. But, you know, isn't that sort of what Mickey did? I'm not saying Mickey's the bad guy. I'm not. But I do think Mickey forgetting... Okay, I keep calling him Mickey when I really need to be calling him Marvel Man or Miracle Man because that's the distinction this is meant to create. At the end of the day, Marvel Man abandons his humanity for something much different and can't even begin to understand the things he used to question. Like, the things he questioned when he first regained his abilities are so foreign to him now. You know, it's funny that you brought up you should be calling him Miracle Man because the thing is, the series narration starts with Mickey. And although he transitions to the identity of Miracle Man, I wonder if part of that lingering doubt at the end of issue 16 is the fact that he can't ever completely bury Mickey and leave him dead. You know, he is always still in there, some part of him. And I think that immediately kind of talks to your question about Johnny and Kid Miracle Man. Maybe there's just something, especially because 
By this point, let's not forget, we're told that Johnny in the Kid Miracle Man form is so dangerous because he was never meant to grow up out of time like that. He was never meant to be in this world developing so perfect, so amazing at all times. That wasn't what his person was meant for. So by this point, Marvel Man's done that. Do you think he detransforms anymore? It's specifically implied that he never does again. He walks up into the mountains and leaves those clothes. There's a part of my brain that was like, if you ever do untransform at any point in time, you're just going to be a naked, sad old man. You really should be wearing something. But like, he thinks at least believes he is never going to untransform. When he decided to make silence at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, I was like, oh my God, what happens if, what happens if nothing? He has no intention of letting himself ever be transformed back. And that's, I think, the big thing that drew me to talking about Miracle Man. It's such a complicated work about a man who is questioning how he can become a god, but once he becomes a god, he no longer questions what it was like to be a man. And, except he does. And so much of that is what drew me to this. And to pivot for a moment, while we are still going to talk about the Marvel Man material that was released by Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham through the course of a six-issue miniseries... I want to touch on the Marvel 1000 page for a moment. Now, Kevo, you'd felt like the Marvel 1000 page was sort of cynical. I did not enjoy it. I felt that it was a little biting about the current state of comic books and superheroes in ways that I don't think were congruous with the material being used to convey that message. I think it was already a stretch in the first place to try and say that Miracle Man is reading comic books to be like in touch with the common man or something. I don't know. And it's a really confusing story. He is at some point in his future looking back on classic comics and reading them and questioning how the magic of those times are gone. And he does sort of leave it nebulous, whether it's his time and his era where the comics are terrible or it's the 2000s and he misses the 60s. But I think either way... The examination of Miracle Man, for me, was exciting and frustrating and filled with as many questions at the end as I'd had all along. I look back on some of the characters that had populated the early stories, like Liz and even Gargunza. I think about the endless number of side characters that we came across, like Mr. Cream or as a chorn and the rest of the warpsmiths and how deep we delved into those characters the promise and sort of failure of miracle dog all of this looking back i kind of feel like what the fuck did i read but i also feel like man i'm glad i read it even if it's been multiple reads and i'm learning new things to take away from it each time i definitely think i have fewer questions than i had at the beginning i think it raised certain new ones absolutely but I think it's overall a pretty satisfying, if at times disturbing, story. I think it is an interesting take that wasn't quite as nihilistic as I'd been afraid it might become. Hey everybody, Jonah here, and welcome to the Joe Man's Corner, where we will take a quick look into the different romantic relationships across the Marvelverse. I think relationships can add a lot to a story, and I'm going to start with a couple that got me into this rabbit hole of love. Today, I'm going to take a quick look at the relationship between Peter Parker and Felicia Hardy, better known as Spider-Man and Black Cat. While this is an X-Men podcast, both of these heroes are no stranger to the mutants, and I think they hold a fairly interesting take on dating and the superhero world. Black Cat first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man number 194, where she originally appeared as a foe. 
She later faked her own death, but came back when she realized that she was infatuated with Spider-Man. He didn't reciprocate those feelings at the time, but he realized that she had the potential and the capacity to do good. I think that's a beautiful start to a relationship in seeing the good in someone and saying you can do good and you can be a hero and i see it as a great start to felicia's identity as a modern day robin hood it wasn't until felicia's re-emergence from her second fake death in trying to save new york city from being blown up that peter realized that he was in love with her and they both started dating since the moment that they decided to be in a romantic relationship there has always been obstacles and a rocky path to trying to keep their feet grounded in being a couple. Black Cat lied about how she got her bad luck powers because she was afraid from the incident of saving New York City. And this drove a wedge between Peter and Felicia, and they broke up. They later tried to reconnect, but Felicia was under the control of Foreigner, and she betrayed Peter. She later betrayed Foreigner in a double Asian act, but the damage was already done at that point. When Felicia came back from France, she saw that Peter and MJ got married and she was offended that Peter didn't wait for her. She went on this path of trying to harass and break them up. She even dated Flash Thompson. She later realized that she was childish and Peter and her were able to bury the hatchet. Felicia and MJ actually struck up a friendship and Felicia actually realized she was in love with Flash Thompson, who did deny her marriage proposal. Then there was Peter revealing his identity as Spider-Man to the world. World, and Felicia took this really personally because up until that point, Felicia was the only person who knew Peter Parker was Spider-Man. That was something that made her feel their relationship was special, that he trusted her so much with his secret identity, which was a huge part of his character. And the fact that he revealed it to everyone made her feel like that she just wasn't that special to him. Or it could be... <laughs> Peter Parker being taken over by Octavius, Dr. Octavius, and attacking Black Cat, where she didn't know that he was under his thrall, and that really, you know, put a wedge between them. There is so much that's going on that's keeping these two apart that I find so fascinating that's just so much bad luck, pun intended. One of the most interesting things about their relationship that I think is so fascinating is Felicia Hardy's love of Spider-Man, but not Peter Parker. A lot of the times when it comes to dating with super superheroes and they're dating with their civilian side they often don't reveal that they're a superhero i feel that when a superhero is dating a civilian they often don't show them their superhero side for protection or any other various good reasons but i've never seen the take of loving the superhero identity and not the civilian identity. That is so weird in turning that cliche of a superhero not being able to reveal his superhero identity to someone to only liking that about him. It even, like, at one point when they were kind of together, kind of not, and sleeping together, they only slept with, together with their masks on. That is so hot and bizarre. I, I think there's no other way to really describe that, that this interesting take on a relationship has been around for many years. And it's one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by that, because it's something I've never seen before. The real, the reason I was so sparked to learn more about the relationship was Nico told me that they got married. And I was like, what? And I was like, well, I, ha I have to know. And the reason that they did get married is such I, – I, I get choked up thinking about it. They've sacrificed a lot for one another, and they consistently do it. I don't think that they'll ever end up together – permanently. I don't think it's possible with Felicia only really being in love with Spider-Man. 
But I do love seeing this romantic connection between the two where they will always have this special bond with one another. I think it's a really beautiful thing, and I would love to hear everybody else's take on this. Do you love Peter and Felicia? Do you like Peter and MJ more? Do you not care about both of them and really only want Peter to be with Gwen Stacy? Tell me all about it. Thanks for listening. We do have one more arc to read, plus two issues of the next arc that have never been re-released, so, you know, good luck having fun finding those. After that, we're going to be turning our attention right back to Mr. Moore on his work on Captain Britain. We're going to be covering the material currently compiled in the Captain Britain omnibus, and we're going to keep rolling along with the Marvel Universe. Brian's coming home? Oh, Brian is coming home in a big, big way. Hooray! Pip, pip. Cheerio, and we finally get the good costume, and I'm just so happy. But until Daddy comes home, hmm. Kevo, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Kevo Really, K E V O R E A L L Y. You can also find me on the Facebook page for our Cage Club network program, Husbands Talking More or Less, at Real Nico Kevo Action. Nico, where can the folks at home find you? You guys can find me all over all of the feeds of this show, as well as HTML, on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. And don't forget to check me out on Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N-N until we come back. Ladies and gentlemen, it has been a pleasure climbing Olympus with you. 